Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19 is where we are. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, I kind of made a decision this week that uh, we are in this last section, right where we are leaving off um, in verse 27. Starting in verse 28, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. And then we begin this long in Luke, several chapters of the Passion Week of Christ. And I thought, as I was looking at it, I think I want to pick that up after Christmas. I would love to, 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 to go through uh, our study of the Incarnation and, 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 and different things and then pick back up in Luke there. And I just think it would be a great journey from Christmas to Easter, just finishing off the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to do that, and, uh, and next week we're gonna, we'll be in, in Colossians. We'll spend some time in Colossians over the next few weeks leading up to, uh, leading up to Christmas. But, uh, but for now, we're going to be here, and, and uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. But before we jump into our study, would you just join me in prayer here? Let's just pray together. Father, I thank you for the great mercy that we just sung and were able to proclaim, and uh, what a great privilege it is to to realize all that we have in Christ alone, our life, our salvation, our hope. And uh, Lord, what a great privilege it's been to, to just proclaim those songs and to be uh, led into those thoughts and ideas by the worship team. And, and Lord, I just am grateful for the privilege we have to do this together as a body and to be so overjoyed by how great you are. I pray now that our time in your word would refresh our souls. Cause us to genuinely um, just be changed as a result of being in the presence of your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when I was in uh, school, from grade school all the way up till my freshman year of high school, I struggled immensely in school, really bad. Um, Pretty much was just on the cusp of failing everything, every course, except gym. It was just, it was bad. I just, and I got to the point where it was so bad, I just hated school. Now later, we found out some of the reasons why is, is, is I have dyslexia. And so everything gets jumbled in my head. You can always tell, a little side note, if you want to have a little fun, like, game to play while I'm reading scripture, is... Uh, if I'm slowing down in the scripture reading, it is not a dramatic pause. It's, uh-oh, I can't see these words. And I have to slow down and look at them. So a lot of people will say, boy, you have a lot of pause, a lot of dramatic pause. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not dramatic pause. It's dyslexia. I can't see the words. Right? I have to slow down and look at it. But, but school was really bad. And then when I went to my freshman year high school, I actually was scared to go to high school. Big high school, 3,800 kids, you know. But it was just like, I just don't want four more years of failing, almost failing, right? It was just, it was just tough. And uh, my parents kind of kept me in, in the regular mainstream, kept pushing me and pushing me, which I'm glad they did. And, 
And, uh, but it, it was hard. And when I got to my freshman year, the very first class I had was this media class. It was first hour, and all the freshmen would come in the first week by themselves just to find their way around the school. And, uh, and, my, my, and the first class I had was this media class where we had this big library, two-story library in our high school. And, and in, in, the, in there was a whole media wing that had like a radio station and a video thing and a recording studio. And, and I was able to, to take a class to work all these things, which I wanted to do. I thought it'd be fun. And so my first hour class was this one. And, and so I went into it, went into the library, found it, found the space, sat down at the table, and the teacher walked in. He walked right over to me, which I, I figured out why he did this now, years later. He walks right over to me and grabs me on the shoulders. I don't know the guy, big guy, and he just squeezes my shoulders really hard. And he said, one day you're going to run this whole department. And he punched me in the arm. Okay? I remember this. Right? He's like, one day you're going to run this department. Okay, I was a little nervous. He singled me out in front of the class, you know, like, just awkward. After class, everybody's gathering their books, leave, go to their next class. He pulls me aside and he says, now listen, you're going to run this department, so I need you to get good grades. Now, I know why he was doing this. Now, I can look back now. I'm sure he read my records and realized this kid's not going to make it through high school. He is just not going to make it. But... He was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. And the reason why he was a good teacher is he realized, I didn't need another lecture that I needed good grades. Duh. I've been hearing that for eight years. How many teachers can You need to get better grades. Really? I thought the whole goal was to get the F, right? I didn't know, right? Like, how many times did I hear, you need to get better grades, you need to get better grades, you need to get better grades, you need to get better grades. Being told that over and over and over again, was not a motivation to me. It was a very much a demotivator. He absolutely radically changed my high school life. That first thing he said. He said, you're going to run this place, so I need you to get good grades. And you want to know what? A's and B's the rest of high school. So this isn't some big testimony moment, right? You know, oh, you got A's and B's. But you know what it was? It was the fact that I wanted to run that place. That's what I wanted to do. And I had a whole new reason to go to school. And it wasn't just to fight with teachers or to, to goof off like I used to do or tell jokes or do silly things. It was now to actually get good grades because I wanted to run this thing. And I did get to run the, the, the thing, which was great. It was a great experience. Now, I think about that. I thought about that this week as I was looking over this passage here uh, that we're at here in Luke 19. And in this particular passage, this is the parable of the ten minus. This is a very similar parable to what's in Matthew 25, which is uh, the, the parable of, of, the, of the, you know, the, the talents, they call it, where these servants receive something and they're told they're supposed to do something with it. And the reason why I thought of this account with this teacher this week is I was thinking, you know, you could go through this whole parable and you get to the last guy, if you're familiar with the parable, you get to the last guy, he doesn't do anything with what he's given and, and he's called wicked and, and, he's, and he's yelled at. And, and basically, we could turn this whole sermon into a very like, if you don't do something with what God's given you, you're going to hell, right? Which, which we could kind of come at you that way. But it had hit me this week. 
Jesus is saying, I got a place for you here. I've got a place for you. I want you to run this department while I'm gone. And I want you to do something for me. And because of that place, there is a motivation to serve. Because we've been given this place, there's a motivation to serve. You know, God saves us, and we sung of his great mercy and grace. But you know, beyond just uh, placing you into heaven when, when you die, or the new heavens and new earth, the end of the age, God says, listen, I've got a place for you right now. So when you read things in the Bible, like be holy for I am holy, or, or love your enemies, or turn the other cheek, or do good to those who persecute you, you could kind of create a grocery list. These are all the things I have to do. Or you could think about it this way. I've got a place in God's kingdom. God has this eternal plan. He, he wrote this whole plan together before he created the world. And he's executing this plan. And he created me to be part of this plan. So I get to be holy. I get to forgive my enemies. I get to do this stuff. Because I have a place in the kingdom. You know, I had a place in that school my freshman year. And as a result, I wanted to get good grades. I have a place in the kingdom of God. As a result, I want to learn how. Notice how I phrase this. I want to learn how to forgive my enemies. <laughs> I'm not saying I do it. I want to learn how to do it. Because I have a place in the kingdom. You, child of God, have a place in the kingdom. And God is now saying, I want you to do something while I'm gone. Now, this whole period of time that he's referring to, I'm going to refer to it through this whole sermon as what I'm calling the gap. There's a gap. And the gap is between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. He comes the first time. He starts a process. Then there's this period called the gap. Just going to, we're going to call it that. And then there's his second coming. And in the course of that gap, he's saying, I need you to do something for me. In fact, I've got a place for you in that gap. And I want you to make the most of that gap. I want you to make the most of it till I return, till the gap is done. And if you're breathing right now, you have a place in that gap. No matter what your past is, no matter what your age is, no matter any of that, you have a place in that gap if you are in Christ. And this is what we're going to see as Jesus concludes his talk on how to endure to the end, which is really what chapter 19 has been teaching us. This is how you endure to the end. This is how you make it to the end. And the last thing he tells us is make the most of the gap. We're going to see this two ways. We're just going to see understanding the gap, and then we're going to see making the most of the gap. And here's what I basically want you to get out of the sermon today. Something very simple. I don't want you to come out of here with a grocery list of to-do lists. So I'm not going to have a lot of like huge applications at the end. Instead, what I want to give you is a worldview. A worldview. A worldview is what? It's simply the way you process the world around you. When that teacher said to me, I want you running this place one day, he was giving me a worldview. And the worldview was, hey, you can actually be in charge of the recording studio. You could be in charge of the video production room. You can be in charge of all of these things that go on. And I said, that's what I want. And at that point, that became the motivation to actually try to read a book. 
which is what you have to do when you're in school, right? And, and, and to actually do my math homework, to actually turn it in. It became a motivation. But see, it was a worldview. I want that place. And I'm willing to do whatever homework it takes to get into that place. I want you to get that worldview so you're not going to get a to-do list. I want you to get a worldview because once you get the worldview, you'll know what to do with your life. No matter where you're at, whatever station in life you are. So I, I, today my prayer is that you would get the worldview that's being presented here. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's understand the gap. Look at verse 11 with me. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, what are the, these things? We've got to kind of put this whole thing in context. In fact, verse 11 on this whole parable is really critical. If you miss verse 11, the rest of the parable, you'll, you'll, you'll misunderstand it and you'll, you'll make applications I don't think Luke wanted you to make. So here's the parable. Here's the setup here in verse 11. First thing, notice, there's three things here you got to look at. First is he said, as they heard these things. What are the, these things? Jesus has just went to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus said, man, I'm all in for you, Jesus. Take, I'm giving you everything. I don't care about this world anymore. I want to be with you. And Jesus said to him, you are a child of Abraham, meaning you're saved. You're in the covenant. And then Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. And so you could imagine that this conversation must have dominated the talk. Because we get this picture that Jesus is continuing his journey to Jerusalem. He's just outside the door of Jerusalem now. He's giving his last set of instructions. And, and Jesus is explaining to them, I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to grab these people. This is what salvation is. This is the topic. Now the reason why this is important is because this is the business of the, of the master. This is what he's doing. He's seeking and saving the lost. You need to know that. Store that in your brain. It'll become important later. Okay? Second thing you've got to notice is that he's almost to Jerusalem. So he's left, left Jericho. He's making his way down into Jerusalem. And there is a ton of excitement around Jesus entering Jerusalem. They think he's the man. He is going to set Rome on fire. This is it. People are thrilled, right? We know what's going to happen. He's going to end Jerusalem. People are going to be tossing their jackets down, singing out Hosanna, singing the Psalms. It's, there's a fever pitch of emotion. He's been going along the way, healing people, saving people, tearing down Pharisees. He's been doing it all. And he's on this doorstep of Jerusalem, and there's an essence where he's stopping and pausing and saying, guys, don't let your emotions get the better of you. You're thinking about this all wrong. And how were they thinking about it? That's the third thing you have to see. They thought the kingdom was coming now. They thought Messiah is born. He's going to live. He's going to enter Jerusalem. He's going to restore the glory of Jerusalem. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And Jesus is going to say, no, there's a gap. I am coming into Jerusalem to die because I'm seeking and saving the lost. But then there is going to be this gap. And this gap is this time in which God had ordained before the foundations of the world for millions of people to be born. Millions of them. They're going to be born all over the world. 
And these millions of people will able, be able to see the glory of God in all creation. And they will be able to hear the message of the Messiah. And God is saving people in the midst of this and sending them out to proclaim His name among the millions of people that God had decided to be born so they could hear this message so that at the end of the age we could have that parade of nations we talked about a few weeks ago and all of the nations gather before Christ and all the people that were there and, there was, and they're going to bring the glory of their own nation to Him and there's going to be this great worship service. So God has this plan to pull in these, these people from every tribe and tongue, from every generation, people from the 5th century, 6th century, 9th century, 10th century, 20th, 21st century, and who knows how long, until that last person is born. And that last person hears the message, and the fullness of what Paul calls the fullness of the Gentiles come in. His name is going to be made known. That's the gap. And what he's saying is, listen, guys, there's a gap, and I need you to do something in that gap. But what I don't need you to be is afraid of the gap. Don't be afraid of it. Engage it. You know, you think about it. A lot of times, a lot of end times teacher, teachers will get you afraid of the present, right? The Antichrist is coming, and the computers are taking over, and this is going to happen, and, and oh, Jesus, you got to rescue us now, man, because I can feel the heat of the breath of the Antichrist on my shoulders, right? People can make you feel that way. And you know what happens when you get kind of what they call over-realized, that's a theological term for it, or they overemphasize something? When you overemphasize the return of Christ the wrong way, people start getting pulled out of the gap. Quick, build the bunkers, hide out till he comes back. And Jesus is saying, no, man, I created this gap. Don't be afraid of it. Engage it. And that's what we're going to see. It's going to tell him, make the most of the gap. Look for my return, but let that return motivate you to make the most of the gap. If, if, if this is Go with me. This is heresy, what I'm about to say. If, if, uh, yeah, you're saying go with you. What are you talking about? If I told you God told me that Christ is going to return on Friday of this week and you believed me, and let's just say, this is crazy, this is dumb, let's just say it's right, okay? Now it won't be dumb, okay? But let's just say it is for a moment. How should we spend our week? How should we spend it? Should we spend the week saying, hey, it doesn't matter. Everybody just gather, gather. We're going to hang out all week long. Jesus is coming. No, we should spend that week saying, man, let's get busy. We got five more days in the gap. Let's make the most of them. You see, the return of Christ should never pull you out of the gap. It's got to motivate you to stay in it. And that's what this whole parable is about. I've got a place for you in the gap Make the most of it. So let's look. How do we do this? How do we make the most of the gap? Our second point here. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, in order for this parable to make sense, I've got to give you a little background. Because you might just read this and think, okay, I don't know what he's doing here. And, 
what's important about this, but this, this is all set in a particular context. So let me explain to you the way the Roman Empire worked. You've got to know a little bit about Roman government in order for this, this story to make sense. When Rome would come in and conquer a place, they come in to conquer a place, they would conquer a nation, and then they would allow that nation to be ruled under their laws as long as those laws don't contradict the Roman laws. If any law contradicts the Roman laws, then they would get rid of them. So very much similar to our states. We have certain states. We've got 50 states in, in our country, and, and each state has its own set of different laws and speed limits and rules and different things. And as long as those laws don't conflict with the federal laws, the states can operate. Very similar in the Roman Empire. So let's just say the Roman Empire comes in. They, they take over Israel. Uh, they're going to allow Israel to be managed under most of their laws, as long as those laws don't conflict with the Roman Empire. Then they would place a king over that. They would call him a king. Because you have, like, the emperor who's over the whole deal, and then each nation would have their own king. And that king would operate like a governor in our, in our country. Now, when that king would die, they would, the Roman Senate would need to replace him. And the way that the Roman Senate would replace him is that the, the nobleman would be able to jump in and kind of apply for the job. Now, the nobleman would have been the children or the grandchildren or the cousins or distant cousins or somebody connected within that family unit would be in line to be the king. So king dies, his sons, his grandsons, his cousins, the king's brothers, they would all go to Rome and they would lobby to, to the Roman Empire to say, we want to be king. And then people from the country would come. you got to know this. This is part of the story here. People from the country would come. And they would lobby for who they would want and who they wouldn't want. And the Roman Senate would, wasn't taking a vote, but they did love their peace, right? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They loved peace. And so what they would say is they would say, listen, if this guy has a huge contingency of people who hate him, we're taking them off the table. We don't want to get the whole country mad at us. So people would come up and they would show up. And they would voice their opinion and the Senate would listen. So here you have a story. You've got a nobleman. He's going off because the, the previous, or the, the, the king has died of that country. So now he has to go off and get the kingdom conferred to him by the Roman Senate. So that's the story. Guy goes off. He's going to become king. At least he has that option. Okay, now look at verse 13. He's getting ready to go, so what does he do? Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. It obviously makes sense that these noblemen also are the business leaders, right? Politics is everywhere. This is the inner circle. These are the people who own the businesses, the power brokers. He's got a business. He's going to leave to go receive it. He doesn't want his business to die. He's got servants, so he grabs ten servants, gives them all three months of wages. And notice the key to the whole thing. What does he ask him to do? Run my business till I get back. I got this job that I'm doing. I'm leaving. I want you to do my job. Got to keep that in your mind. It's the point of the whole story right here. I'm leaving and I need you to run my business while I'm gone. And we've already learned what the business of the Messiah is, right? 
He's come to seek and to save the lost. So he said, kid, this is my business. I'm giving you what you need to run it. Notice verse 14. But his citizens who hated him, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So now you understand what's going on there in the story, right? The people of that village said, or that, that nation said, we don't want him as our king. So that delegation went to the Senate to tell him, we don't want him. Okay. So now you've got three, three, three strands, three, three streams here in this, in this story. One is a nobleman going away to receive a kingdom. The second, servants asked to carry out the business while he's gone. And third, people, the citizens, saying, we don't want you as our king. See any biblical imagery there? I wasn't seeing any. I, I, I couldn't track with the story. No. Right, you get the storyline, right? Jesus is going away. He's told his people to carry on his business, and there's a lot of people in the world who hate him. Okay, so there's the storyline. It's right there, pretty clear. Okay, so now, Jesus, the key, what I want you to catch here, or is the nobleman, tells these guys, carry out my business. And that, I'm going to keep hammering that because that's the key to this story. You know, one of the things that I, I love about this story, one of the things I love about Jesus, one of the things I love about really seeing these kind of passages is that being a part of the kingdom of God puts us a part of the fullness of the plan of God in this world. Like, if you're searching for significance in life, if you feel completely insignificant, if you feel like you're just like this useless blip on the radar screen of life, you know, you're just going to light up for a second and go away, and that's the end of it. That is so not true. That God, when he calls us, says, listen, I'm putting you in, in, in the stream of the purposes of history. And you get to be a part of what I'm doing you get to run my business i thought about my dad this week actually i was thinking when I, my dad was a plasterer and uh, oftentimes worked side jobs on the weekend and he would bring me to work with him even like when i was five years old he'd bring me to work and he would never bring me to work and just like bring a bunch of coloring books and say go sit in the corner and color while i work he put me to work even at five years old, I was cleaning, sweeping, hauling things in and out, whatever I could carry, washing things. I mean, it was a, you know, it's messy work, so I, I was always involved. But, you know, as a five-year-old, I didn't bemoan the fact that I was working. I loved the fact that I was doing what my dad was doing. I loved the fact that, that, that I was doing what he was doing. Kids love to do what their parents are doing. You know, they love that. And I was thinking, boy... God had a plan for the ages of humanity. And he's saying, Steve, you get to be a part of it. A place for you. In fact, you're going to run this place while I'm gone. Now, let's see what happened. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom. So, he's the king now. He gets the kingdom. Important to know that. He comes back as the king. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Guys, I've asked you to do one thing, do my business, 
So now, when I come back, it's audit time. The only thing on the king's mind at this moment is whether or not they actually did the business. That's it. Only thought on his mind. Did you carry out my business that I asked you to carry out? That's the only thing. So he got three groups of people. Verse 16, the first group. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas. They doubled it. And he said to them, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. He's the king, man. You know, you have been faithful with just three months of wages. You've turned three months of wages into six months of wages. And, and as a result of this, now that the kingdom's coming full, I'm pouring a boatload of blessings out on you. You get authority over ten cities. You get to be a, a regional leader. Right? Powerful blessing. Remember that about the master. He's very generous. You'll need to know that in the story later. Second group come. Notice what happens. Verse 18. Second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are, you are to be over five cities. Okay, so they didn't double it, but they, they did add five more to it. Went from 10 to 15. And so he says, you know what? I'm blessing you. You're going to be blessed according to the work that comes. He's not comparing. He's not judging. He's not any less dissatisfied with the one who comes in with five than the one who comes in with ten. He's not angry with them. He's rejoicing. But now we have the third group. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Okay, third group. You know what? We took this three months of wages. We wrapped it in a handkerchief. Probably stuck it in their mattress, right? They, they, we're going to protect this thing. We're not going to do anything with it. Because the master is a tough guy. He demands. He takes. He takes stuff. He goes after things. He's aggressive. He is so harsh. You better not lose a dime of his money or he will just whoop you up. That's what they're saying. So we did nothing... And it's your fault, actually, because you're really a mean guy. Now, there's their response. They're making excuses. They have received the kingdom, and their only thought was to protect the resources of the kingdom, and their only thought was to protect it. Now, he made it clear, I want you to advance with it. I want you to conduct business. I want you to keep going. And they say, no, we're going to protect it. We're going to hide it out over here, and we're going to make sure nothing bad happens to it. Because you're really mean. And we know what will happen if you get angry. So we're, we're hiding it. So now look at verse 22. Right? Can you make excuses for not investing what you've been given? Can you come up with an excuse? Well, he can't. Got to protect it. Could lose it. Might lose money. Blah, blah, blah. Right? No, there are no excuses. Notice verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Okay. So he's saying, you know what? Your own logic has defeated you. <laughs> if I really am that cruel of a guy then you really should have invested my money because I told you to invest it. Right? You, you can't make excuses. 
This is, I've told you what to do, and if I do work that hard, and if I am that way, then yeah, you should at least put it in the bank. You can't sit on it. You can't let fear hold you back from investing what you've been given by the master. You cannot let fear hold you back. That's what he's saying. You could let fear hold you back. Come up with a billion excuses why. He's saying you can't let fear hold you back. And he says fear is, a, is actually a self-condemning reality because if you really are afraid, then that should motivate you. If you're not motivated out of love, you should at least be motivated out of fear. Because this is why he calls them wicked. You guys are wicked. You're just making excuses for not doing what I've asked you to do. So let's look at the response. What does he do? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now they kind of freak out at this, right? And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas, right? This is kind of like the opposite of Robin Hood, right? We're stealing from the poor, giving to the rich. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He's saying, listen, with this guy, I've invested, I've given you a piece of the kingdom and you've done nothing with it. So now I'm going to give it to the one who doubled it because he proved to be faithful. Now, if you think about it this way, if I was your broker and you gave me your retirement account, and let's just say you were putting $3,000 a year into your retirement account, i say, just, you know, just send it to me, I'll take care of it. And uh, at the end of the first year, you say, okay, wh- wh- where's my retirement account at? And I say, it's at $3,000. You'd be like, okay. So then the next year, you put in another 3000 and you say, okay, where's my retirement account at? At the end of the year, I go, guess what? You're at $6,000, right? You'd be like, okay, this is going in a bad direction, Steve. You see, if I put $25,000 into that thing, I do not want $25,000 at the end. I'm looking for a lot more zeros at the end of that investment. But if you've got some other guy over here who's making millions, that's where you're going to put your money. This is what Jesus said. Listen, this guy has proven faithful, so he is going to get blessed. Now, here's the big question people ask. Is this guy saved or not saved, right? That's what a lot of people are thinking. Was Jesus condemning him? Did he lose his salvation? What's the point of the story? Well, the interesting thing is that we know in the parable in Matthew 25, he is sent to hell. He's sent where there's, you know, gnashing of teeth. But that's not the focus here. The focus here is that he does lose what he's given. Where his eternal soul goes, the the story doesn't tell us. And when the story doesn't tell you something, the whole point of life is not to start obsessing on what it doesn't tell you. The point is obsess on what it does tell you. What is it telling you? What we have been given is intended to be invested. And it's not good to hold it back. It's just not good. We get to be part of God's plan. That's what he's saying. Enjoy it. Be in it. Don't hold it back. Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Go for it. That's what he's saying. But also realize it's not good if you hold it back. But there's one more stream here, right? Remember, there was that contingency of people that said, we don't want him as our king. He's now the king. Right? Always the risk in the Roman Empire is whether or not you're going to voice whether you want someone as your king or not. 
Because in the Roman Empire, if you went and said, okay, there's a bunch of noblemen there, we don't want Tom over here to be our king. If Tom gets to be king, what is Tom going to do to you? You know what Tom's going to do to you. Tom's going to kill you. And notice verse 27. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus is telling this parable, right? He's got his disciples and he's got people around him. And he's basically saying, you guys are thinking when I enter Jerusalem, boom, it's all going to pop and happen. Actually, you want to know what's going to happen? I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to tell some people, go and make my name known to the world. Make disciples of all nations. This is the business I'm asking you to do while I'm gone. And I'm going to leave. And some of you, you're going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You're going to hate me. But I'm telling you, if you continue to hate me, it's not going to end well for you. Because I am the king. And when I come back, if you're still my enemy, you're going to die. This is what he's telling the people right before he enters Jerusalem. Now, what do we do with this story? Let's wrap it up. Well, like I told you, this is a worldview. I want to give you the worldview of this. Instead of a to-do list, something that should shape the way you process everything as you leave here. And there's four parts of the worldview that are in this text that I want to give you. Here's the first part. Ready? The first one is this. There is a gap in time. What I mean is Christ has come. He's going to come again. And in the middle, there's a gap. And the worldview is simply this. God created this gap. This is not a gap that Satan owns. This is not a gap that belongs to the Antichrist. This is God's gap so that God's people that he created would hear the great message and be brought into the kingdom and be established in Christ. And we get to be part of that job of not only being in, seeing people come into the kingdom, but seeing them established in Christ. And I don't know how many people that is. It could be quadrillions, right? I don't know. Some big made-up number with a billion zeros on the end of it could be the number. The gap will last as long as God wants it to last. But here's your worldview. God made this gap. And what God is saying to us is the second part of the worldview. Number two, make the most of the gap. How do we make the most of the gap? We make the most of the gap by saying, God, I don't know what unique part You've given to me to play in that gap. There's lots of things that happen. People need to hear the message of Christ. They need to to be established in Christ. They need to be nurtured in Christ. They need to be trained. They need to be sent. There's all kinds of things that go on in that gap. And each one of you are part of that. And what he's saying is make the most of it. Now you might say, Steve, I don't even know if I know Jesus enough to be part of the gap. Guess what? If you know Jesus, you got a part to play in the gap. You got a part to play. And not all of us are the same. Some of us are great trainers. Some of us are, are great evangelists. Some of us are, are, are quiet, behind-the-scenes people. Some of us are in places in life where, where maybe our context and our pain and our tragedies are the very things that are going to be used by someone else or be used by God to invest into someone else. Whatever it is, you've got a part to play in the gap. But this leads us to the third part of the worldview then. The third part of the worldview is that we get a glimpse 
of the end of the age. We get a glimpse of the end of the age. And the glimpse of the end of the age is that suddenly we begin to see that the great work of the Messiah is what matters. It's what matters to God. More than anything else. What matters in terms of our church is that we would make the name of Christ known. It doesn't really matter whether we meet in a gym or whether we meet in a cathedral. It doesn't matter whether I'm wearing a suit jacket or whether I'm wearing shorts. It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. What's going to matter at the end of the age is not how many sermons I preach with a suit jacket on. What will matter is whether or not I made the name of Christ known. And whether or not I use the way God gifted me to be part of this plan. If anything less than that matters, then we are not doing the business of the master. And so when we get a glimpse into the end of the age, remember that what matters most to God is this mission that he's on to unite all things in Christ. And that's what will matter to us most at that point. But then fourthly, rebellion leads to death. Somebody says at the end of the day, I don't want to serve Jesus. I knew a guy, I've referenced this before in the past, a guy studied with at Moody Bible Institute, and he was, knew the Bible, knew languages. He was a brilliant guy. And a few years later, he said, I don't even want to follow Jesus anymore. He was in deep rebellion to God, just deep rebellion. That little flower that was there was scorched away by the love of the world. And he hates Jesus. And the sad part about it is it's going to lead to his death if he doesn't repent. Because Jesus is the King and the Lord. So these four things are part of the worldview. What I would encourage you to do then is to pray. God, let that worldview be my worldview and maybe add one more piece to that prayer. God, show me the part you want me to play in your work. That's it. It's just that simple. Show me. And I guarantee you pray that prayer, and you start to pour yourself into the life of the body of Christ, you'll see that part. You'll see it. And that's what should matter most. Because we get to be a part of what he's doing. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for this great work of you seeking and saving the lost. You created a gap that this business would continue until you return. That this great mission would go on, and we know where it ends at the end of the age with that parade of nations, that of people from every tribe and nation and tongue that will gather around you. Lord, thank you that you use all of us the quiet people, the boisterous people, the leaders, the servants. Those who simply serve by, by making an opportunity for people to hear your word by watching their children during a service so they can be established in Christ. To, to those that want to go to the far reaches of the world to make your name known. Lord, it doesn't really matter the amount of 
of impact, whether it's by 10 or by 5 or by 3 or by 1, Lord, just help us to conduct your business while you're gone. May we make the most of this gap, not be afraid of it, but embrace it. Not try to erase it, but to love it and to live for it. And Lord, thank you of that privilege we have to be part of what you're doing. May that energize us, God, to live for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.